0: Thank you for that, nice specific, nice suggestion from this gentleman here. Let's start again. We need to reboot the world. All right, so uh, I promised something about uh, (coughs) the keeping of our silence and just to recap, so we have the... A vinya, which is the code of conduct for monks and nuns. Like usually, when you you know when I'm sure when, when you've learned about the Dhamma and so on, you've you've most of the time would have learnt through the Suttas, and of course that's that's appropriate. That's how it should be. But uh, I think it's also worth just having some idea of what's encountered in the vinya. and you know this comes back to what I was saying earlier and saying this morning that we living in these times where we are so threatened, so uncertain from the threats posed to us by the climate crisis and by the various other um, apocalypses that seem to roll down upon us on a daily basis, uh, that Vinaya gives us an example of how the Buddha used the Dhamma to create uh, an intentional community. And it shows us a lot of those very specific and very practical things that maybe we can overlook if we're just reading the suttas. So when you know when Buddhists and when monks and nuns argue about the suttas, they argue about and Nibbana and dependent origination but in the Vinaya we argue about like, is it, can you leave the water in the water dipper is that allowable or we argue about what else do we argue about in the Vinaya we argue about um, well here we go I'll have an example of something here that we can argue about so I somewhat embarrassingly tried to find this chapter and failed. Now, of course, I realise why. I was looking in the wrong place, of course. So this is the chapter on the Pavarana. So can anybody here tell us what is the Pavarana in brief? Invitation. invitation for feedback. All right. So done as a annual uh, practice at the end of the three month rains retreat. So we just finished the rains retreat. Did do you guys do a babwarana in your monastery? It's coming. We have in general. Okay, it's coming up, right? Okay. So so this is from the translation by... Um, at the moment, the, the Vineyard translation on sort of central is a bit of a hybrid. Uh, the traditional translation is by Abi Horner uh, and uh, Venerable Bramali is doing a new translation. So the one on sort of central is mostly Abi Horner's one with some some bits by Bramali in there. Uh, but Venerable Bramali is working hard to finish his translation so probably sometime next year we'll have an entirely new Vineyard translation by Ajahn Bramali. All right. One time, the enlightened one, the Lord, was staying at Savati in the Jetas Grove in the Monastery. Now at that time, several monks, friends and associates, entered on the rains in a certain residence in the Kosala country. So Kosala being the region around Savati. Then it occurred to these monks, Now by what means can we all together on friendly terms and harmonious spend a comfortable rainy season and not go short of alms food? It occurred to them. Well, if we should neither address each other nor converse, but whoever should go f- return first from the village for alms food should make ready a seat, should put out a water for washing the feet. A footstool, a footstand, having washed a refuge bowl, should set it out and should set out a water and water for washing. And then whoever comes last from the village for alms food. So do you understand what this is talking about, what it's talking about going to the village for alms? Do you know what that means? So, t- someone Tell me what it means. Taking the bowl? Right. Oh, here we go. yep. going around and invoking the magic powers of the bowl. In Australia we have, we have this we have this this children's story in Australia called the magic pudding. Where you kind of no matter how much of the pudding that you eat from, there's always more. So the bowl is like our magic pudding. And we go around and very nice. On uh, yesterday we did the arms round with the bikinis in where was it again? It was a, Sebastopol? yeah, and got lots of food, right? Very kind people, and they were so happy to see us. So many people coming. oh, it's so lovely to see you. What are you doing? So when when I'm staying in Sydney, um, you know, this is one of the great traditional practices of the Sangha. And my current residence in Sydney, unlike most places I've stayed in since I've been a monk, is in the city. And when we moved there, one of the things that I... That, you know, discussed with my friends in Sydney. I said, look, can we, can we get a place that's near somewhere that I can go for alms round? So if we can go for alms round every day, we can keep up that good monastic practice. And it's just a, a beautiful way to live. So we live uh, in Sydney near Harris Park and round the corner from Wigram Street, which they call the Little India of Sydney. So we go there every day and they give us some jhupadis and curry and that keeps me happy. Okay. Now, uh, so whoever comes back last in the village of Ramsrud, if there's any rem- remnants of a meal and if he, if he sows desires, he can eat them. So if any of the monks got too much food, the last one in can eat the rem- remnant. But if he doesn't want it, he can throw it away that where there is but little grass or drop them into water where there are no living creatures. So the idea here is that you don't uh, soil or don't pollute. I mean, it's interesting to see how... Uh, even in those days, they were so very careful about disposing of the rubbish in a way that it wouldn't cause any harm. He should put up the seat or put away the water for washing the feet, the footstool and the footstand. Wash the refuse bowl after and put it away and put away the drinking water and water for washing and then sweep the refectory. Now, whoever should see a vessel for drinking water or a vessel for washing water or one for rinsing uh, in the toilet that's empty, then he should set up water. If it's impossible, then he, that means if the if it's like a water jug, which is too big, then you should do it by signalling your hand and invite your companion by movement of the hand, but you don't have to speak for that reason. All right. So if you see this empty water bottle, you need a hand, just say. Thus we, may we, on friendly terms and harmonious, spend a comfortable rainy season and not go short of alms food. Then these monks neither addressed one another nor conversed. And it goes on and repeats that and says what they did. Now, it was a custom uh, for monks who had kept the reins to go and see the Lord. Then these monks, having kept the reins at the end of three months, packed away their lodgings and taking their bowls and robes set out for Savati. In due course, they, arrived, they approached Savati and approached the Buddha and they bowed down and it is the custom for the Buddhas to exchange friendly greetings with incoming monks. The Buddha said these to the monks, I hope that you are well. I hope that you kept going. I hope that altogether on friendly terms and harmonious, you passed a comfortable rainy season and did not go short of alms food. We were well, Lord. We kept going and we, Lord, altogether on friendly terms, passed a comfortable rainy season and did not go short of alms food. Now... The targeters, the realized ones, here translated as truth finders, ask knowing and knowing sometimes do not ask. They ask knowing the right time to ask and they do not ask knowing the right time when not to ask. They ask about things that belongs to the goal, not about what does not belong to the goal. Uh, there is bridge breaking for truth finders. It's kind of a kind of curious bit of an idiom but it means that they, they, don't, they don't do anything that doesn't belong to the point of the Dhamma. So when they ask questions, they either ask, shall we teach the Dhamma, or they ask, saying, shall we lay down a rule of training? Now, this is a stock passage which is inserted here, which, to me, seems to be kind of inserted to explain away the fact that Buddha's asking questions. I, I, I tend to think the Buddha was just asking questions because he wanted to know the answer. But this is kind of wanting to say, well, you know, of course he knew the answer already, <laughs> and this is why he was asking it. But anyway... That's just my interpretation. And he said, but in what way, on friendly terms and harmonious, did you spend a comfortable rainy season? And we entered, and they told him, we to entered the rains in a monastery in the Kosala country, and we said, uh, let us neither address each other nor converse, and that's how we did it. And then the Buddha addressed the monks, saying, indeed, monks, these foolish men... Having spent an uncomfortable time, pretend to have spent a comfortable time. Indeed, these foolish men, having spent communion like beasts, pretend to have spent an equally comfortable time. Having spent communion like sheep, having claimed to have spent a comfortable time, having spent communion in indolence, pretend to have spent a comfortable time. How can these foolish men observe an, a vow of uh, members of other sects of sects? the practice of silence or a vow of silence. It is not for pleasing those who have not yet pleased and so on, not for the growth of the sasana. And the Buddha went on to say, monks, a vow of silence, a practice of members of other sects, should not be observed. Whoever should observe it is an offense of wrongdoing. I allow monks, monks who have spent the rains, to invite in regard to three matters what has been seen or heard or suspected. That means to say you invite, say, if I've done anything which has been seen or heard or expected to be wrong or to be harmful or something, then please admonish me. Uh, that will be what is suitable for you in regard to one another, a removal of offences and an aiming at the vineyard. So that's what the Buddha said about keeping a vow of silence. Seems kind of harsh, right? Yeah? I mean, imagine what you'd feel like if you were one of those monks. You go there and you think, oh, we've just done the right thing. We've been practicing together. We've been looking after each other. I mean, they weren't bad, right? They, were, they actually did a pretty good job. And they come down and the Buddha's like, "It's pretty heavy. Why do you think the Buddha came down so strong on them? What does this tell you about all those re- silent retreats that you've done? Sorry? Maybe not so I don't know. I guess most people here have been on silent retreats. Did you know about this beforehand? Did they tell you? When you did the retreat, did they tell you what the Buddha said about doing silent retreats? No. Usually when these days when I teach a retreat, the first thing I do is I tell people this story and then I asked them, do you want to take a vow of silence? <laughs> <laughs> so, what, what's this about? What's going on? Question I mean, are, are all the roots of the silent retreat practice that we commonly do? Yeah. don't know not really are they so it's a different context so that's one thing right so that's true yeah what what, how does that matter like what what how is it how is the different context meaningful Okay, but in what way? Like, well, like how, how would that not be relevant? Like, why? if we understand why the Buddha is telling these monks off, then we might understand why, if we're doing a different kind of practice, why that's relevant in that different context. Yeah. I, I may be misreading it, but to me it seems like he's saying, hey, if you have a problem with something that your compatriot is doing, you right. should let them know and not bottle it in. Right. Absolutely, and that's absolutely what the Pavarana is about. And you know, it's not meant to be something which sort of just happens at the end of the three-month rains, but it's like setting an example of this is how you should be behaving. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yep. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I I think it was five days, but yeah, every Friday. Yeah, five days. So every they, they were in silence mostly They they didn't talk when it wasn't necessary to talk. They didn't right? talk when it wasn't necessary to talk. So they had a system which was supportive, but they also did speak and then and they spoke specifically about it. Right. So this is very interesting, right? So there's the same passage, almost the same, right? Is found in other places, so that way that they're living together is actually held up as an ideal of monastic life, and you can see that actually there's much about it that's very beautiful, like it's very inspiring. I mean, you see those very simple things, you know, the way that they looked after each other, and the way that they, you know, took care of each other and cleaning the things and just those simple practical things. Uh, and it's very close, like what these monks here were doing is very close to that, right? But they just changed certain things yeah? uh, particularly about that, that idea about keeping silence so go on in, in any place where you have rules yeah someone doing something that's against another other. It's a it and uh, you know <laughs> in in any society you have those kind of conflicts. Sure. Yeah? Anyone else here? Okay, not grasping on, uh, Sorry? Not grasping. On oh it. grasping it. But, but it doesn't say don't grasp on it, it says don't do it. When there's a time to speak, exactly, yeah. You've got to remember that in the 2027 rules for male masks that's not about 300 and something. No. Is there any rule that says you're supposed to be silent? No. Okay, so, yeah, thank you for those thoughts, and I think there's some, some good good reflections have come out of there. I mean, one of the things that's happening here, the Buddha is very concerned about building a community and about people who can learn to live together. And, you know, t- traditionally perhaps not been something that we have emphasised so much in modern Buddhism, where we have like retreat centres and dharma centres where you sort of come along and sit together. That's all very nice in that, but you're not necessarily building a community in that same kind of strong way. So, so, you know, these days we t- I think people talk a lot about that and I talk a lot about building Sangha and Kalyanamitta and these kinds of things. Uh, but sometimes we don't remember that the Buddha actually did this and that in the Vinaya there's a lot of information, a lot of guidance and a lot of precedent for how to do this well. When we are practicing Dhamma, we are hopefully, practising the Noble Eightfold Path. And one of those factors is right speech, samawacha. And sometimes it feels a bit like that no speech can be easier than right speech. And we think that by keeping of our silence, we're going to be keeping right speech. But you can see here, the Buddha is saying keeping of our silence is like living together like beasts. Again, it's pretty harsh, right? Living together like sheep. In fact, when we recite our uh, you mentioned just a minute ago the, the 227 rules for monks, the 311 for bhikkhunis, that they are uh, at the beginning of them they say if you uh, have conf- have uh, transgressed any of these rules then you should confess it if you don't confess it then remain silent if you've broken any of these rules and you remain silent then this is a lie this is false speech in full awareness so you can actually lie by remaining silent yeah And, I mean, that's a specific technical legal context. But if we apply that more generally, I think that it's probably true that we lie by omission, like a lot. (laughs) Like a lot of things that we probably should be saying and that we're not. You start to think of those things, and there's probably quite a few of them. So, so this is giving us some of those very practical examples of how to live together and how to build a community. Now, I'm not, I, I, I wouldn't want to say that, that that should be directly applied if you're doing like a weekend retreat or a 10-day retreat. And if people want to keep it, you know, silence for that retreat, I understand. You know, it makes it easier to do your meditation. I, so I wouldn't say it's right or it's wrong. But I would say that it's worth reflecting on. Uh, and asking ourselves what are our priorities in practicing the Dhamma, uh, that we do these things. And often we take these things on board without even reflecting or understanding the context behind it. All right? Okay, good. So we have about, uh, what is it, about half an hour or so left. And so just in this remaining time we have together... Are there any questions? Any comments? If no questions or comments, anyone know any good jokes, <laughs> can share with the group. Yes? I have a question. No jokes. Sorry. No jokes. So I'm curious how your own personal meditation practice looks like and when you go on repeat... But kind it kind like, of looks like this. <laughs> <enough>. <laughs> sorry, that was a joke. Uh, anyway, go on. <laughs> so, uh, go on. Yeah, and what? what, what no, 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 that's it. I just wanted to learn about your own personal uh, meditation practice okay. and your own personal uh, retreat practice. Right. And when you go on retreat, whether it's silent or not. Okay, well, um so for myself, then. Mostly, my meditation I do is uh, I do loving kindness meditation and breath meditation, and and also like vipassana, contemplation of impermanence primarily, and other things like contemplation of death, contemplation of the four elements, so a bit varied. And, uh, you know, try to keep generally, I try to structure my day so that I can sort of work during the day and do my practice at night time. Uh, from time to time, like when we have the rains retreat and so on, then we have a chance to do more intensive practice. Uh, whether I keep a vow, of si- no, I don't keep. We don't keep. We definitely don't keep vows of silence. It would be too embarrassing for the for the rains retreat. But we do have. Uh, um, if we're living in the monastery, most I'm not sure what you're doing at, at Dhammadarani, but when I was in Australia at Santi or Bodniana Monastery, uh, we would have an opportunity to do. Usually, like a few weeks uh, of meditation in our kutis, so we just go to our huts and stay by ourselves. You're not really, you're not technically keeping a vow of silence, but you're also not really seeing anyone, and you just sort of get on and do your practice. Uh, before I went to Sydney, I was living in Taiwan, uh, and I stayed in tai- I stayed on a little island off the coast of Taiwan called Qimei, uh for about two and, <coughs> and a half years. And during that time I was mostly staying by myself uh, and hardly ever saw anyone or talked to anybody. And I just stayed in my room and did my translation. So that's why I translated the four nikayas. Uh, and that was all I did, do my translation and do my practice. Yeah, So I was very lucky to have the opportunity to do that. Yeah, I felt quite... Felt quite sad when it finished. I'm like, I wish there were more suttas so I could translate them (laughs) for longer. (laughs) Yeah. How many hours per day would you say? It depends on the on the time. Like probably at least a couple of hours a day, but you know more than that if there's if there's an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Gentleman at the back. Yeah. We were talking about the first council this morning. Yeah. Right? Yeah, this morning. And um uh, is there any, uh, do we have any sense of uh how close the the candidate is today from how it was in, at the first council and how much the development there has been since that time or or do we know that? Or is that too big a question? <laughs> right. No, that's okay. We can dig into it. So, uh, okay, so this is a question of how much of what we have here today is similar to what was recited at the First Council. Hmm. Unfortunately, they didn't live stream the First Council. So we... It's a bit of a bummer, right? I mean, no one even tweeted it when they were there. (laughs) Um well, what can I say? Uh so okay, so we already had a look at the account of the first council and we can see that this is this, the version that we saw is from the Pali. There there's a there's a description of what happened, and the description of what happened coincidentally exactly matches what we find in the Pali canon. Fair enough. Now, when we read the, for example, the Sarvastivada version of events, which is the uh, one of the other schools of Buddhism. Uh, I've got a red light on the battery. It used to be green on here, and now it's red. So, this is probably a battery on here. Yeah. All right, let's see how we got. Is that good? Yeah. Can we hear that? Okay. All right. so hang on. Is the right way around? sure, hang on Let's that way around. That's better. Is that better? Okay. No, maybe not. Sorry? Yeah. All right. Are we good? We can hear? Okay. All right. So, um, where were we? Right. So, we heard the version. Now, Sarvasivada is one of the other schools of Buddhism, which was very widespread and very prominent for many hundreds of years after the Buddha passed away. And in their Vinaya, they give a description of the First Council, which does not begin with the Diga Nikaya, which the Pali version says, but it begins with the Sangyuta Nikaya. And lo and behold, the Sarvastivadin suttas also begin with the Sangyutta Nikaya or Sangyutta Agama. Beginning to see a pattern here. And the Dharmaguptaka Vinaya gives a description of what happened which matches their suttas, the Dharmaguptaka suttas. Strangely enough, people tend to write these things to say that the ones that they have are the right ones. Now, of course, all of these things are, you know, on on one level, uh, it doesn't really matter, right? Did they recite the Sangyutta first or the Diga first? Well, it doesn't really, you know, who cares? But, you know, it is about coming to some kind of groups with, with what is the historical reality of what occurred. Uh, in some cases, the differences are greater. For example, in some Vinayas, uh, it says they recited the Suttas and Vinaya, and other places it says they recited the Sutta, Vinaya, and Abhidhamma. So then that's a more substantial difference. Uh, so from a uh, modern critical perspective, we don't take any of those kind of uh, stories uh, just you know by faith. We want to look into it and see what is the, the basis for it and whether there's any uh, evidence in favour of these things. And so this is one of the uh, jobs of what's called uh, uh, textual criticism. So what textual criticism does is you basically take a whole bunches of texts and evidence and whatever you can, and you try to look at all of it, and you try to discern what really kind of went on. Uh, And that's kind of a job of scholarship and these kinds of things. Now, textual criticism is by its very nature somewhat uncertain. Like any kind of scientific enterprise, it's always changes, it evolves, people you know, argue with each other and write new papers and disagree with the other person's papers and these kinds of things, but over the years there has been a, a, a broadly based consensus about the main outlines of what are considered to be the early texts of Buddhism. Uh, and that broadly based consensus is that the uh, early part of the Buddhist scriptures are most of what occurs, what, most of what's found in the four Nikayas, most of what's found in the six early books of the Nikaya. Nikayas. So I'll show you what these things are, it's sort of central. So the long discourses, middle discourses, linked discourses, and numbered discourses, these are the four main Nikayas. In the minor collection, the Kodika Nikaya, the Dhammapada, the Udana, The Divuttaka and the Sutta Nipata, not these guys unfortunately, and then the Teragata and Terigata. And these are the main ones which are regarded as early uh, and part of the shared heritage of the suttas. The other books are written somewhat later. And in addition to that, in the suttas, the Vinaya texts, uh, the Vinaya texts on the whole are somewhat later than the suttas but the Patimoka, which is the basic code of conduct for bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, uh, and many of the uh, basic procedures and so on of the Vinaya are also regarded as early. So that's what you know. most people who study early Buddhist texts would regard as being the, the, the earliest scriptures. Uh, and of course I should say that included in that is not just the things included in the Pali Canon, but comparable material found in the Chinese Sanskrit and Tibetan uh, material as well. So that's what sort of loosely we call the early Buddhist texts. So we can't quite write a list that's going to say these ones are early and other ones are late. Well, we can, but everyone will disagree with it, so there's not much point. Uh, and, you know, I think it's important to, to recognize, on the one hand, it's important to recognize that the fact that something's early doesn't necessarily mean it's right, and something that, so the fact that something's late doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means it's different. It's evolved in a different historical context for a different purpose. This is one thing to bear in mind. However, having said that, it's also true that there is a radical and frankly almost shocking shift in the nature, and, nature of the teachings from the early to the late period within the canon I'm talking about here. I'll show you what I mean by that. Let's have a look at... Uh, one collection here. Uh, let's take the Terry guitar. Why not? Right? We love the Terry guitar. Okay, we'll take the Tikanipata. The threes and the Terry guitar. I don't even know what these things are. I'm just collecting them randomly. Apara Uttama Dantika. That sounds like a nice name. Okay, now I just chose this completely randomly. I've, got, I've, I've translated this, right? But it's not like I can remember all the things I've translated, right? I've done so many things I can't remember. So Dantika Theri. So the verses of Dantika Theri. I'll, I'll, I'll take the Pali away for this for a moment. Leaving my day's meditation on Vulture's Peak Mountain, I saw an elephant on the riverbank having just come up from his path. A man taking a pole with a hook asked the elephant, give me your foot. And the elephant presented his foot and the man mounted him. Seeing a wild beast so tamed submitting to human control, my, ma- my mind became serene. That is why I've gone to the forest. Yeah, Nice, right? So this is, And this is all the hallmarks of the early Buddhist literature. And again, just to say, I, I just randomly chose this verse, and the Terry guitar and the Terry guitar the verses amongst the nuns is full of this kind of thing. You can see the emphasis on the meditation for a start. Right? Here I was meditating in seclusion, I come down, but also that emphasis on something very real and very immediate. To see something just an, what an ordinary sight in those days an elephant, an elephant trainer working with the elephant, you see that, ah taking a lesson from real life and applying it to the actual work of making your mind serene and then recognizing, ah, that's why I'm doing this. Yeah? It's very human. Yeah? It's very human. And it sounds like something that you might think if you're walking down the street with a bit of mindfulness. Right, and you might th- see uh, a, 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 a beautiful tree in blossom, or you might see uh, a mother looking after her child, or you might see many things, and then think, ah, oh, that reminds me of the Dhamma, and this is why I'm meditating. So this is what this is typical of the Theragatha and typical of the early Buddhist texts. Now the Theri and Therigatha, which give the verses of the lives of the monks and nuns are accompanied by another set of scriptures called the Tera Upadana and Teri Apadana. And the Tera apadana, apadana and Teri Apadana give the stories of the past lives, ostensibly, of the nuns, and often the same nuns. I was wondering if we've got a Dantika, uh, a Teri Apadana, we'll see. And let's see... Whether, uh, let's see if we can just find even the same one. I'm not sure if uh, Dantika has the same. Maybe she doesn't have a Terry guitar. Terry Apadana, sorry? I don't, I don't her An Apadana, no, perhaps not. Okay, so let's look. have a look at a random. Let's see, I'll just close my eyes. Random Apadana, okay, here we go. Got. Taking a spoonful of begged food, I gave it to the best Buddha, the teacher, whose name was Tissa. So this is a Buddha in a far past life who is wandering, begging food. Accepting it, the Sambuddha Tissa, chief of the world, the teacher, standing on the road, uttered this thanksgiving to me. Giving this spoonful of begged food, you will go to Tava You will be fixed in the chief queen's place of 36 kings of the gods. You'll be fixed in the chief queen's place of fifty kings who turn the wheel. Everything your mind may wish for, you will receive it every day. Having enjoyed great happiness, you will go forth, possessionless, destroying your defilements. You'll realize Nibbana, undefiled. Having said this, the Sambuddha Chittisa, chief leader of the world, the hero, flew into the sky just like a swan king in the air. Well given. Was my superb gift, well sacrificed, my sacrifice. Giving that spoonful of begged food, I've attained the unshaking state. Right? Awakening isn't sitting in the forest and meditating, it's giving food. In the 92 eons since then, I gave that almsgiving back then, I've come to know no bad rebirth. That's the fruit of giving begged food. My defilements are now burnt up, my all new existence is destroyed. Like elephants, broken chains, I'm living without constraint. Still still the elephants, right? Uh, being in the best Buddha's presence was a very good thing for me. The three knowledges are attained. I've done what the Buddha taught. The four analytical modes, the eight deliverances, the six special knowledges mastered. I've done what the Buddha taught. Thus, indeed, the bhikkhuni kattu cha daika spoke of these verses. So it's kind of different, isn't it? Yeah? I mean, it's not completely different, right? I mean, there's obviously there's shared values in there. But still, it's very different. And this is not just one isolated case. Like I said, I just chose that at random. And the verses in the Terri and, and Gita all have that quality that we find in those early Buddhist texts. And the Theriyapadana, which was maybe a couple of hundred years later, right? almost all the verses are like this. In fact, this is, these are quite restrained compared to some of the others, which go oh, all the divine celestial mansions you've got with all the flowers adorning them and all of these kinds of things. So you can see that when, when we are, um, you know, those of us who are interested to study Buddhism and to study what the Buddha taught, we focus on the early Buddhist texts, there are reasons for it, you know. And those things which we find most valuable, most real, most immediate those are the things we find in the sutras and in what the buddha actually taught. on the other this really the original format i feel like this is of kind of in the hands of translators it made it kind of no 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 this is a this is a quite a literal straightforward translation yeah good, good this is only recently translated by jonathan walters uh and he did a good job yeah but it was written a couple of years later than the wrote. a, a, a couple 100 years a couple 100 years later yeah Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, so yes, yeah, so it's so an earlier translator. No, 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 it's not an earlier translator. This is a new text, right? It was written a couple of hundred years after the Buddha, mm-hmm. uh, after the other text. Yeah? It was composed, so yeah, not translated. They had to integrate their grief and dealing with being without their Buddha and having all the people who directly know the Buddha have passed away. Right. right yeah that's a, a lot of that literature is really um, in a lot of that sort of mid-period literature especially is really kind of informed by that sense of loss mm-hmm. that sort of feeling that we live in we live in failing times yeah yeah sharing a little bit of personal stories and how My personal stories but I'm very boring. You were a musician. That right? <laughs> That's true, yes. Yeah. All right. Well if you insist. All right. <laughs> um well Well, so I lived in uh, Australia, I was a musician, and um, that was fun. Got to travel around the place and take a bunch of drugs and play a bunch of music, and it's awesome. And, (laughs) (laughs) and well, you kind of (laughs) I never felt like I'd reached Nibana. I did have a friend who was taken out of his body into a council of elders in the sky who revealed the secrets of the universe to him. So that happened. Unfortunately, (laughs) unfortunately he woke up three days later naked, wandering through the forest, having completely forgotten what the lessons of the universe were. But anyway, (laughs) there you go. So, where was I? Oh, yes, music. And so, you know, it's fun. You go around playing music and things like that. And... I don't know. To me, it's kind of my life, right? I mean, I I was looking for something. I never really felt like I belonged. I never felt like I wanted to do a career. Like, it's weird, right? Why do people do that? Why do people have careers? I don't know. Anyway, so I did this, and I was very lucky to have that opportunity. Met some good friends. We made some music together. And then, of course, it all fell apart because we were all stupid. And... We thought we would, you know, we thought we were better than we were or whatever. Anyway, so I was kind of depressed and so on. And my friend, Thisby, uh, called me from the Central Australia. She was living on an Aboriginal community out uh, at Imampa, not far from Uluru. And she called me and she said, well, look, why don't you come out and stay with me? We can spend a few weeks out in the community together. So that sounds like a good idea. So of course not having any money, I grabbed my backpack and grabbed my guitar and started hitching down the road. So I hitched north from Sydney. Anyone anyone been to Australia here? A few people been to Australia, You ever you ever driven that road the highway from Sydney up to Brisbane? No? Okay, anyway, beautiful highway and uh, so I was hitchhiking up, hitchhiked up to Brisbane, that's fine, playing music along the way and I would just sort of sleep in the parks and sort of go busking, make a few dollars, buy a falafel roll and uh, you know that was good and headed up to Townsville. Townsville's about another thousand kilometers north of Brisbane and once I arrived at Townsville then uh, you know got my my guitar and I'm standing hitchhike by the side of the road and one hour, two hours, three hours and it got to the whole the end of the day. I'm like, no bastard's giving me a lift. <sighs> what terrible people these are, right? I just want a lift. Anyway, no one can stop. There's like hundreds of cars gone past. Anyway, so went back into Townsville, played a few songs, got a bit of money, bought a palafel roll, slept in the park. In the morning I woke up and... Like facing me in the morning, like here, was a cane toad. Anyone know about cane toads? Yeah, a few people know about cane toads. Yeah, cane toads are, um, well, they're they're not pretty. Uh, (laughs) in, In Australia, I think it was in the 1950s, they had this bug that was eating the sugar cane. And so they thought this, um, this kind of toad, which was from South Africa or something, would uh, be good for eating these bugs. So they did this experiment. They, they fenced off a field of sugarcane. They put the toads in there, and then they observed them. They found out that the bugs live at the top of the sugarcane and the toads live at the bottom of them. <laughs> so that's not going to work. Unfortunately, there was a hole in the fence. So, fast forward, then there are now like millions and millions and millions of these horrifying things which eat like everything else. And they're right across the north of Australia. Anyway, so this cane toad is staring me in the face. Oh, hello, cane toad. All right, so I go and stand by the side of the road again for another day, nothing. Third day, standing by the side of the road, still nothing. Right. Bad, isn't it? I mean, this is Townsville. I mean, you've got to put it relatively speaking. I mean, this is like a, you know, if you've got a hippie going hitchhiking in Alabama, they're probably going to be expecting a few kind of fallow periods, shall we say, between getting a friendly reception. Anyway, so there I was, so frustrated. And by this time, because remember, I'd already was kind of depressed when I started this journey, and by now I've completely lost faith in humanity. I didn't, you know, What's the point? So, what do I do? I said, Margaret, I'll walk. So, I just started walking out of Townsville, or walk west. And, well, there's not a lot there. <laughs> when I say not a lot, I mean like nothing. <laughs> And I walked for a few hours and then got to this, just at evening time, I a, 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 came across this farmhouse and I asked, I asked them, I said, you know, where, where's the nearest town? You know, I thought I was going to walk to the next town and see if I could get a lift from there and then they said, oh, the next town's like 130 kilometres, 100 miles away. So I'm like, okay, maybe I need to reconsider this plan. So I slept by the side of the road that night, and then in the morning started walking back into town. As I was walking back into Townsville, uh, I walked past a dead kangaroo on the side of the road. And if you've ever travelled around Australia, then you know it's actually quite, you know, it's very common to see dead kangaroos on the side of the road. Uh, And... I mean, environmentally, what happened in Australia is the, the white fella came and... Uh, and chop down all the trees and kangaroos are uh, like a grassland animal. So, you know, may- very many of the animals in Australia who are very adversely affected by that but the kangaroo population actually has increased a lot uh, because they love eating the grass. Anyway, so then they jump in front of the cars and that's that. So there's a dead kangaroo on the side of the road and I just walk past it, didn't think too much of it and then I hear this sound. The sound's going... Like that. What's this sound? What is that? I was looking around. I realized that there was a joey in the pouch. And the mother had been killed, hit by this car and was dead on the side of the road. And the poor joey was still alive in the mother's pouch. Right? Oh, my God. What do I do? I'm like, I'm a city kid, right? I mean, you know, I I grew up in Australia, but, you know, in the city, you don't have kangaroos bouncing around your backyard. (laughs) Just FYI. Um, And so I sort of bent down and sort of carefully pulled the joey out of the mother's pouch and wrapped him up. I had a sweater, and wrapped him up, just carrying him down the road. What do I do? So there I am at dawn in Townsville, walking down the road carrying a joey. (laughs) And (laughs) first house I got to, uh, you know, went up. And, you know, in the countryside people get up early, so they were already up and about, and there was an Anglican pastor's house, and his wife was there. And uh, I went and knocked on the door, and she answered. And I said, oh, hello, how are you? I've um, I've got this joey. (laughs) What do I do? And she said, "Oh, never mind. We can we will take the Joey. We'll we'll I'll, we'll raise him. I've I've raised many joeys from that age before." She said, "Now, the first thing you have to know when a Joey is this age is that they don't drink water. They drink tea." Huh? <laughs> so, you have to make weak black tea, and then you pour it into the saucer, and you put a little bit on your finger and put the put your on the put it on the Joey's lips. And she said that's why the Joey's making that sound. He's thirsty. So if you've learnt nothing else from today <laughs> you've learnt that Joey's drink tea. I bet you didn't know that, right? <laughs> and so she was so kind. And this is a woman that I would I would never have met otherwise, right? An Anglican pastor's wife in you know, the outskirts of Townsville. And she had so much kindness and so much generosity of spirit to just respond in that kind of way. I was, just felt so deeply moved. And when I left that house, I chatted with her a while, left and standing by the side of the road, I remembered, I just thought to myself, I'm, I'm going to go to Thailand. Why? I don't know. <laughs> the mysteries of the human mind, I guess. And somehow, I don't know, somehow I felt like I needed to do something different, I needed to explore something, I don't know why. But just that thought came to my mind, that's what I'm going to do, so that's what I did. Got together a bit of money, went to Thailand, and the rest is history. So there's a number of lessons that we can draw from that story. Number one is, (laughs) when young people come to me, And they say, you know, I want to be a monk or I want to be a nun, but my parents don't like it. And I say, well, it's easy. First, grow your hair and join a rock and roll band. (laughs) (laughs) And then your parents will be thrilled if you do like literally anything else. (laughs) So, I mean, I guess, yeah. So everyone has their journey, right? I mean, when I put it like that, it sounds kind of very kind of lurid and really kind of exciting and things like that, but to me it's just my life, you know, it's just the choices that I made and what I did. And, uh, you know, I'm, I've always felt very uh, blessed and very uh, privileged to have been supported. Uh, when I went to Thailand and there was a monastery there, I could go and stay for free and do meditation which was great that's the main reason I went there oh it's free Ah, oh, great and you can do some meditation oh yeah sure whatever <laughs> and ever since you know when I wanted to practice I showed up at what Nana Chant, it's a monastery for western monks in Thailand and they just took me in and I wanted to become a monk and sure you can become a monk and I had a place to stay, I had teachers, I had books, I had all of the things, I had good spiritual friends, anything that I needed for, for living the holy life. So that's one thing that's always been very important for me is to try to remember that and to extend that to others and to remember the blessings that the Dhammo has brought to me and that my responsibility to share that with others. And I know that, you know, at that time I didn't really understand these things. You know, why is it that I, as a bloke, can go there and just ordain and it's not even an issue, but if there were women who wanted to go and ordain, suddenly it became an issue. Why is that? I don't know, I didn't understand, so I had to try to find these things out. You know, And I understand also you know, as a white man, right, you get those privileges of being able to do these things. And so always sort of something that's been really powerful for me has been to say, well, look, those benefits and those privileges that I've had from the Dhamma, I need to share them with others and try to live in a way that will always share those things. And I, 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 this is part of what's uh, fueling my my work with sort of Central is just to remember that the Dhamma should not be... You know, it should not be restricted by nationality, or by gender, or by sexuality. It shouldn't be only those who can afford it. It shouldn't be just to the rich who can access to the Dhamma. And everybody should have access to the Dhamma everywhere all around the world. So when I did my translations, all of my translations are done under a uh, public domain license. So they belong to humanity, they don't belong to me my translations I mean I just do a bit of work on it but it's a Buddhist tradition which has maintained these teachings and passed them down for so many years And I just share them I just do my little bit and pass them on and by doing that we bring so many people together and can 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 create so many amazing things that there's no way I could even begin to do by myself when I began Today you know, we talked about climate change and the, the, the climate crisis and the, the um, threat that that's posing and the, the, the difficulties we're all going to be facing. The teachings in the, in the suttas do in fact talk about climate change. Uh, of course, impermanence being a central thing, they talk about the changing of the climate. They even talk about anthropogenic climate change that human activity, especially growing of crops and agriculture, is responsible for changing the way the climate is. Those ideas are explicitly talked about already in the suttas, two and a half thousand years ago. So as Buddhists, or as people who, you know, whether or not we consider ourselves Buddhists, but as people who are interested in the Buddha's teachings, we draw on that to find that wisdom and that love and that compassion to look after ourselves and to look after each other. We learn from what the Buddha taught us in terms of how we can live together, how we can advance, how we can find freedom. We look at these things, and in situations where hope has gone, we don 't fall into despair, and we remember that Dhamma is not lived for any other purpose than to be free and to be to do the right thing and so many people ask you this like, you know when I, when I talk about these things, I say, well. Personally, I don't know how you feel, but personally, I've given up hope. I don't have any hope. I don't think we're going to fix anything. I may be wrong, hopefully, but I doubt it. But what does that mean? I mean, for me, it means I try to live every day as best I can. Whatever happens is beyond my control, but I can live my life and try to be a good person. I can try to do the right thing, not because I expect to get anything out of it, but I try to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. So hopefully we can learn a way to find and to live together as Dhamma practitioners through these really challenging times. So it's four o'clock now. We should be wrapping up. And I'll leave that Dhamma with you for now. I'll be doing a number of events around the place over the next few days. So hopefully I will see some of you there. Where can people find out about different events that I'm doing, do you know? Do you know? Is there, is there a single point of place? I don't Buken? know if there's a single point of contact, okay. I can say that you're going to be in Sacramento tomorrow at the ABS Temple. Okay. Okay. And are to a topic on Tuesday at Stanford. Tuesday at Stanford. Okay. Anything uh, on the website go to? Is it on Dhammadarini's website? Yeah. It's there. It's there. It's on Dhammadarini.net. not necessarily. All right. So thank you to uh, all of you for coming and for your attention and for sharing this Dhamma space with us today and especially uh, thank you to all of those people at the Sati Center here who have hosted us uh, for your kindness and your generosity and uh, I wish you all the best. May you all attain Nibbana quickly. <laughs> sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Sadhu.